episode of the Legendary Life Podcast, we have a first. This is an interview with my client, Javier Lombreras. He is the first personal training client that I've had on the show, and I'm really excited to have him. He is someone who not only have I enjoyed training him, but I've also enjoyed having conversations with him. For me, he's like the the real life world's most interesting man. He is a manager of a hedge fund, Artamundi Global Fund, which is a unique category of investment combining finance and art and investment. He's going to tell you about it. I don't pretend to understand all the intricacies of hedge funds and what they do, but he'll explain that to you. And aside from his financial success, he's going to talk about struggles he's had, how he overcame them, because Javier didn't come from an affluent background. He grew up in Spain in a rural city and created all this success for himself. He's traveled the world. Very interesting guy. I've learned a lot from him. I love spending time with him. Love speaking with him. And you're going to hear also about his hunting trips. And I know hunting is a very charged subject, but I want you to keep an open mind and listen to his breakdown on how it played a part not only in how he grew up, but also how it plays a part in who he is today and how he looks at the world. It's not what you think. And so keep an open mind with that. Also, you're going to hear firsthand from one of my clients about his experiences with training with me and how it's affected his health, his life, and how he views fitness in the bigger picture of what he does as a businessman, as a family man, and as someone who wants to get the most out of life. So super excited to have him. So sit back, enjoy this interview with my client and friend, Javier Lombreras. Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice, and today I have Javier Lombreras. Javier, you're the first client I've had on the show, and I'm really happy that it's you because you're such an interesting person. We've had some great times training together and hearing your stories. As soon as you told me some of the stories of your life and what you do and and what you've accomplished, I knew I had to have you on the show. And just a quick bio, you are the CEO of Artemundi Management Limited, and that is a company that manages a hedge fund called Artemundi Global Fund. You're an art collector. In fact, your family spans back several generations, all the way back to 1881, where your grandfather started collecting art. You've authored the book, The Art of Collecting Art, which I love to talk about. You told me a wonderful story about how you ended up writing that book. But you're also into archery and riding horses. You're an avid hunter. You've been lion hunting in Africa as well as other exotic places. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Ted, for inviting me to your podcast. I'm very honored to be able to help you in your phenomenal set of episodes. Thank you. Absolutely. I've given you a brief intro, but I'd like to hear how you describe what you do to people who ask you. Basically, I keep my horizon and my chances open. That's what I've done all my life. 
I think that what has allowed me to take upon opportunities over and over again has been the ability to reinvent myself, has been the ability to be free, has been the ability of not being afraid to take upon new challenges and new opportunities that life has has given me. Sometimes some people have better opportunities, there's no doubt about it. There are circumstances where life will force you to start a certain path that might not be the path that you wanted to be in. Sometimes because of family situations, the country, the neighborhood where you grew up is going to lean you towards certain events in your life that are going to define who you are. But on the other hand, my advice to most people is to keep your horizon and to keep your life free to make changes. I like to put the example of a big oil tanker. You're out in the ocean and you're steering a small boat, you can make sudden changes and take upon opportunities. When you're steering a big oil tanker, when you go in a collision course, nothing's going to move that tanker from this collision course. Yeah. And I think life is a little bit like that. When you anchor yourself too much with many things, many things can anchor you. Your job can be an anchor, your mortgage can be an anchor, your family can be an anchor, your kids can be an anchor. But if you're just at least aware that those things happen, that might give you some flexibility to be able to upon opportunities. I always tell people, if you have been able to do what you wanted to do in life, don't pass that burden on your children. What I say to people is, don't be afraid of grabbing onto opportunities. Don't be afraid to leave things behind. Don't be afraid to break that comfort zone and take a little bit of a chance. Yeah, I really think that's it. And then the rest, you were saying a lot of great things about horseback riding, all those things. I would fly helicopters. I wanted to learn how to do it. I'm not an avid helicopter pilot, but I wanted to learn what it was like to fly a helicopter. So I did. And many other things. If I had the chance, why not doing it? It's part of what I said before. I don't want to pass anything to my children that I haven't done and hoping that they're going to do it for me. It just doesn't happen. I think that the best thing I can give to my children is a solid education. That's such a powerful point. So don't be anchored too much. Don't be that big oil tanker that's full of baggage where if you're on that collision course, there's no way to maneuver in time. You're, you're just going to crash. You got to be agile. You got to be flexible. Exactly. I'm not saying anybody can be that oil tanker. Everything is relative, right? Some person might have a tremendous fortune, but still be in an oil tanker on a collision course. Absolutely. There's some people like that here in Miami Beach that uh, mm-hmm. I could even name by name, but I won't. <laughs> Let's rewind a bit. That was so beautifully put. And you've talked about a lot of your philosophy, but let's talk about the formative experiences in your life that led you to become who you are and got you to do what you're doing today. You grew up in Spain. Let's go back to that. I was born in Spain, in in Avila. It's just 80 kilometers away from Madrid. And growing up as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the countryside. That's why I have a great passion for outdoors and sports. So since I was a kid, I grew up around people that at the time it was a normal thing and I know they mentioned before some people might not like me because I hunt but it's something that was part of my upbringing. The first thing when I was six years old my grandfather gave me a shotgun and took me out hunting. Hunting with dogs, serving the fair chase of the game and hunting for food and hunting for the sport. I've never liked the killing, I never enjoy shooting an animal for cruelty. If I could avoid shooting the animal at the end of the hunt I would do it. Hunting was part of who I am and it's part of who I have become because really the rest of my life has been sort of like a hunting game. It's been the thrill of the hunt 
every single year, year after year, experience after experience. That's how I see life. I've been hunting all my life, not just animals, of course. I've been hunting jobs. I've been hunting opportunities. I've been hunting to raise a family and children. I've been hunting to keep in shape. I've been hunting to keep my brain focused and my body fit and everything else you do in life. You're thriving, you're surviving. And for me, hunting is part of my heritage, is my background. And that's how I focus into life. Like I said before, I don't enjoy shooting or killing. That's, that's preposterous. If you want to shoot, you just go to a shooting range and let your adrenaline go. But that's not why I hunt. Interesting. And yeah, I love how that experience early in your life, growing up in the family that you did, it was part of what you did. It was part of the family tradition, part of how you lived in that city in Spain. And it's become a metaphor for how you approach your life. And I remember some of our conversations during our training sessions where you talk about the hunting and it just struck me because like you mentioned, some people are not going to like you right away and they're going to snap judge you based on that. And others are going to think you're cool as hell, but neither of those viewpoints are quite the perspective you shared with me when you were talking about. Can you talk about maybe a story or experience that can illustrate how you look at the whole experience of what it means to you. You mean like an actual hunting experience in Africa? Sure. You told me about when you went hunting lions, there's all these rules and what you had to do. You told me about the hippo that nearly attacked you, but it was actually just scared. Could you share maybe the lion hunting experience? The lion hunting experience has sometimes been scary. <laughs> I also like the buffalo hunting let's, experiences. Let's hear the buffalo then. When you're hunting the buffalo, you usually get up very early in the morning. The way I hunt is the only way I hunt, and I think that's the only way of hunting. Some people shoot from cars. That's not hunting, that's shooting. In my case, you wake up very early, and what you do, you start going through the countryside, and you start looking for tracks, for animal tracks, buffalo tracks. If you see the, the buffalo tracks very early, say about 5.30, 6 in the morning, then you start following those tracks by foot. It might take you sometimes several hours. Sometimes you don't catch up with them until like about 11. And why do you catch up with them at 11? Because that's when the sun is all the way up and the animals stop to digest their food. So they sort of like relax and hold on. So that means you have several hours of following. And the way you follow is by how fresh the tracks are. Sometimes you have to actually stick your finger on buffalo drop and see how warm it is so you know how close it is. And you can guess we are an hour away or half an hour away or an hour and a half behind them so finally you catch up with them but in the event of buffalo i've never had an easy experience in this particular one that i'm remembering i'm telling you about it took me actually two days on the first day we never even got close to them the second day we were able to, to get close to them at one point when there was a herd and we were after very old buffalo when you hunt for buffaloes you go for the guys that have already been expelled from the herd so to speak older buffaloes or younger buffaloes to avoid having too many buffaloes from the same father that's what happens they expel the older buffaloes those are very mean buffaloes they're gonna die within a year or two so that's the type of buffalo you're after but in this case this herd of four buffaloes had catch up with the biggest herd and as we were getting close they saw us and we started crawling on the floor uh, sometimes the temperature is like 110 degrees and sometimes they fields have been burned because there are a lot of fires in Africa and they happen naturally as well. That's the way the grass becomes more fertile and comes back the stronger when there's a fire. 
So you crawl on the floor, you turn to camouflage you with some things on your head, and the situation is really very tough. You've been walking for a day and a half. You have little energy left, and you're getting close to the herd, and eventually the whole herd stopped. And they all turn around and start looking at us. Wow. There were 100 buffalo they are looking at us. And eventually, I stood up, and they went just behind the tree. And the buffalo kept coming and coming and coming. They were 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, 20 feet. They're all looking at us. I thought they were going to stampede and just run over us. At the same time, I was trying to see where the big old bugger was. I couldn't see the big buffalo. And eventually, they all turned around and left. That was the end of that second day of buffalo hunting. So what I mean to say is it's always been about challenge, enduring over very difficult and tough conditions. Sometimes you don't have water. You need to rely on the professional hunter that is with you, that they're going to know their way back because you can get lost out in the jungle. There are tons of mosquitoes. There's black mamba, green mamba. There are leopards. There are lions. The buffaloes are very dangerous. Even the hippos, they say that is the animal that, that kills the most hunters in Africa. So the hunting is all about that. It's about survival skills. It's about endurance. It's about perseverance. It's about accuracy. If, if you have the animal on your side, you don't want that animal to suffer. You want to be very efficient on your shot. You want to do it at just a one-killer shot and well-placed shot. The animal is not going to know what happened. It's just going to die right away. That's where I extrapolate all those experiences into real life. When I look at uh, the behavior of us humans, I always compare with the herds, especially, for instance, the zebra. I compare how we humans as a group behave like a herd of zebras. When I'm thinking about family and I think about how my wife is so strong, I just compare her with the lioness. I know they're hunting to provide food for them, but my wife is the one that is defending the household. It's just the way I make those comparisons and they're really helpful for me to go on with my life and make sense of what I'm doing. I can completely understand that. You went hunting for buffalo, but you didn't even shoot anything, but it was just the journey of chasing after them and braving the elements and the dangers in the jungle and you were okay with not ever getting one it was just the challenge in taking yourself to that level you live in a house on the water in the sunset islands a very luxurious place in miami beach you have your exotic sports car your hedge fund that you manage one of the stories that really stood out to me was you were talking about how you sometimes on these hunting expeditions you wouldn't talk to anybody you would just be there by yourself no phone no internet no facebook and you had a song that started playing in your head could you talk a little bit about that actually one of the things that happens when you go in africa is that you can go for three weeks or a month without seeing anybody and that's a wonderful experience in itself you don't need to pay for anything you don't know what the use of money is for until obviously at the end of your safari or the deposits you made at the beginning for me the important thing is not really to hunt the animal uh, again if i'm given the opportunity I don't take chances. I'm not going to take a chance with an animal. I want to make sure that it's going to be a sure hunt. But if I come empty hunted, I'm, I'm just equally as happy because I think there's nothing like being there and enjoying the moment, the carpe diem. Sure. I remember that sometimes you don't have anything. Well, when you come back to camp, everything's it's comfortable set up. You're staying in tents. You hear the lion roaring at night and the hyena roaring, making their noises at night. And sometimes it's a bit frightening because you hear them Maybe they're five miles away, but they sound like they're just sleeping in the next tent. Yeah. This song was recording in my mind, 
you just can't get that song out of your head. And the song that was coming to my mind was this song from Elton John, The Lion King, in the middle of the night. I'm walking in the street. Da, 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 da. That song, I remember, it was always in my mind. I just could, I couldn't get it out. It was there for days. Let me think about something else. I couldn't clear my mind. Just from being out there, I was just enjoying being there, not having a telephone. It's, it's a bless. It's really a bless. This is not like going to and go and go to Crater Park or going to the Serengeti, the Masemara, I've done that, doing air balloons. That's fun, but you're just like any other tourist, you're sitting in a car, you, you're watching the animals. Where what I'm talking about to you now is having a month of walking daily, tens of miles, hunting, and observing each one of those animals in their environment and making sure nothing's going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds intense just even hearing you tell this story now and, and talk about the experience. Let's take a different direction. The hunting is amazing, and I love how you see your life as a metaphor and how when you go hunting, you see the connection between how we as human beings behave and animals in their own environments and you see them because you're on the ground with them not in the comfort of your jeep or uh in an air balloon or anything like that let's talk about what you've created with your business because you told me something very unique that you've done where you found this intersection between your passion for art but also finance can you talk about what led you to creating this hedge fund where people are investing in art? It's something that you have a passion for, but at the same time, you've managed to take this passion and turn it into a lucrative business. Yes. I didn't always know that I was going to make art my way of living. I always loved art, but I love art the same way I love hunting. It was there in my early childhood. It's part of my history of my family. What I saw in art was the same thing I saw in hunting. I find in art answers to basic questions. It's the same thing in hunting. I find answers to basic questions by looking at the act of hunting, but also by observing the behavior of the animals. Observing the behavior of the animals gives me explanations on a basic level on how life works. To be able to live, you need to learn how to die. And to learn how to die, you need to understand those basic questions that I learned from nature. Ralph Waldo Emerson, he writes about nature, but he also writes about the scholar. When he writes about the scholarly books, he mentions that the theory is noble. Before I go deeper into Ralph Waldo Emerson, my favorite sentence is that we build our lives over the sepulchres of our fathers. I understand that, and it's true. Basically, everything we do, we learn because we've learned from before, and we're building over that. That is true, but I always wanted to know how those pokers were, were built. So art gives you the opportunity. Art is not something just to contemplate. The artists create art because they want to express themselves. And artists are part of the intellectuality. In the 15th century, there's a very famous treaty that was done by Sanino uh, Senini. And Sanino Senini is talking about the artists and how the artists need to be trained in the arts of medicine, in the art of dissecting cadavers, in the art of mathematics, and chemistry and poetry and literature, meaning the artist was an intellectual. So mm -hmm. from the 15th century on, the artists are creating works. This is another wonderful saying, and I can't quote who said it before, but he says, uh, art expresses what cannot be expressed in any other way. So uh -huh. again, artist expression, and the artists create art because they have the ultimate need to express themselves. By understanding artworks, you're sort of like philosophizing with mankind, you're philosophizing with everything that has to do 
with intellectual and emotion primarily. I was very in contact with the intellectual and emotional component of art. It lacked the financial feasibility. You cannot dedicate yourself exclusively to collecting art. I realized that I knew enough about art to also realize that it had a financial value. So what we've done in the last few decades, especially since the 1990s and with the appearance of the internet, we've been able to gather results of public auctions, public sales of artworks. And we've been able to, through econometrics and mathematics, basically, financial statistical analysis, we've been able to project the growth of an asset such as art into the future. Not only knowing how much it has appreciated from 1875 until 2015, but I can also probably project where the market is going to go in the next few years. And I can also make solid investments in art based on experience because we've been managing this hedge fund already since 2008. And I know that I can produce interesting returns for investors because by studying the behavior of the asset, we also understand that art, for example, has low correlation with other kinds of investments, meaning that if you're heavily invested in stocks or bonds or real estate and the market takes a dive, your investment in art is not going to behave the same way. As one is going down, probably the art should be going up. And sometimes it's the other way around. When art is going down, other investments are going up because there's more liquidity in the stock market. So we find a lot of valid points to present to the financial academia that artworks can be a good investment. And that's basically what we did. We proved through methodology of investment that we can invest in art while keeping a risk return tolerance of the investor within good perspective. Because if you tell me, what well, I have very little risk tolerance, then you need to go for a lower return. Or you say, I have a higher risk tolerance, then we can go for a higher return. And based on the risk return tolerance of the investor, we can create a portfolio where people can invest on a variety of works. And you reduce risk by having a diversified portfolio because different artists in different periods have different returns. For instance, for example, Impressionist paintings, they've been here for 140 or 150 years, and they have solid track records, and they have a steady growth. When you look at contemporary paintings, they can have this exorbitant returns in very little time, but they can also drop dramatically in price whenever there's a lack of liquidity or when there's a contraction from the demand. By making a perfected portfolio between all masters, impressionist painting, 19th century, modern paintings, post-war and contemporary, you create a portfolio that can give you sustained returns over a long period of time. Wow. That's a big technical, but I've been watching CNBC, the financial channel. One of my clients, he has that on all the time, every time we train. Most people, when they get into the stock market, they're trading stocks, which are shares in companies and talking about Twitter shares increasing in price. What you've done is instead of companies, people invest in artists' work and depending on the artist, depending on their work, depending on the period of art, you can predict how well they're going to perform, meaning which one has high risk and which ones are low risk and what type of return you can expect. Is that a good summary? 
Yes, exactly. I'll give you an example. The primary difference between investing in an art hedge fund and investing in the stock market is that in the stock market, you have immediate liquidity. You can buy Google shares and AT&T shares and sell them the next day if you want. In the art market, you cannot buy a painting and sell it tomorrow because it's not such a liquid asset. Ah. But the liquidity issue of an art investment translates into many other positive factors. For instance, that lack of liquidity makes it a far more stable asset in terms of, let's say, all of a sudden there's panic in the market. Let's say the crisis of 2008, the Lehman Brothers collapse, and you see the stocks plummeting two digits in one single session. In art, that cannot possibly happen. To give you an example, in 2008, going back to the Lehman Brothers situation, the stock market lost that year 37%. The all art index, which is the index that covers all the art markets, only lost 6 or 7%. That's an example of how art can have low correlation with other investments and it can be a good hedge against other things like, for example, inflation, or it can be a good hedge against currency fluctuations. It's a stable asset. Liquidity is what makes this asset very different from other assets, but you will compare an art hedge fund with another hedge fund, like a commodities hedge fund, like an oil hedge fund, like a diamond hedge fund, or even real estate, a REIT. Real Estate Investment Trust works like a hedge fund in real estate. There are differences between one and others. In Artimundi, we created a new category of investment model. That's amazing. And if you're looking to invest in something, you should check out Artimundi and, and what Javier is doing because it's really fascinating. And Javier, I, I don't know if I've told you this, I've got a lot of clients who invest in art and they've named some of the reasons, although you gave a whole lesson on why art is such a fantastic investment. Just a quick question before we move on, because I feel like this is pretty technical information for the, the majority of the listeners, but definitely for me. What is a hedge fund in simplistic terms for those people listening like myself who are a little unclear on what that is? The type of investor that will come to a hedge fund, generally speaking, will be a money manager. Sometimes sophisticated investors might do that. But the purpose of investing in a hedge fund is for capital preservation and getting an attractive rate of return. So basically what you do, you delegate the investment decisions to an investment manager. The investment manager previous to this has created a structure where there's a general partner and there's a limited partner. You create a structure of companies that will manage and protect the assets of the fund. Then people make a subscription through a limited partner and several people make this subscription. They say you want to raise just for argument's sake a million dollars and you make a subscription for a million dollars and then you have six, seven, ten or fifteen n number of subscriptions and it all goes into a pool. Once the funds are in the pool, then the investment manager is going to be responsible for investing those assets and getting a return. Then at the end of a certain period of time, all those assets go back into the market, they get sold and the principal plus the profits get redistributed within the investors after a period of time. Generally speaking, for our funds and many hedge funds, they're five-year close-end funds, sometimes seven or ten years. Sometimes they're hybrid, they're open funds, and they don't have a maturity date, but they produce some kind of liquidity, and the shares of the fund can be sold in the interim. At close-end funds, you cannot sell your shares until the investment period has ended. Wow. That is quite the rundown. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> I'm going to have to rewind that and, and listen to it a couple of times. Let's talk about your book. You gifted me this beautiful book 
that you wrote called The Art of Collecting Art. And you had a wonderful story behind it about you were the first person to not only create this investing in art hedge fund, but also to write a book on this concept. Can you talk about why you wrote the book and some of the struggles you went through that you shared with me in the process? Writing the book had a double purpose. I'm not necessarily sure that I knew what the purpose were when I started writing it, but definitely over the, the course of writing this 400 plus pages long book, I realized that one thing I wanted to do was to put in black and white, answer all the questions that I had myself. And I wanted to know what I knew about art. I had my questions I wanted to see in black and white. And then the other one was, I had many times people, they came and they said, can you explain me about this or that and the other? Why is this important? Why this one isn't important? Why art is emotionally, intellectually important for mankind? Why is it a good investment? So I said, well, why don't I just write a book? And whenever somebody asks me the questions, I'll refer them to my book. The book was primarily that. I wanted to understand myself, what I knew about it. It's a gift to people, basically. I conceived the book and I wanted to write it in, in a way that it was very easy to read without sophisticated language and that it will give a good insight to art collecting because a lot has been written about the, the fact of creating art, a lot has been written about the artists and about art itself. But what I wanted to do is put it in the perspective of the art collector. Why people collect art, why is it art important to us, and what is the effect it has on people. Not only the emotional and the intellectual component and the financial component that we added later, as we said before, but I think it also improves the quality of life in terms of human satisfaction. I think that in the future, some of the most important things for mankind are going to be art and nature. I don't know what the order is, or maybe nature and then art, but I think art is going to be very high up. It definitely is one of the huge things that distinguishes us from other animals in the world, in the animal kingdom, our ability to create language and abstract concepts and paint things. I'm a huge fan of art. Being around you made me appreciate it even more. If you're interested in Javier's book, I'll have that on the show notes. It's one of the most beautiful books that I've ever seen. What I really liked about it, although I haven't read through all of it, it's quite expansive, 400 pages. You explain it in a way, like you said, without hiding behind sophisticated talk that a lot of academics do. You wanted to connect with people and communicate. And I really appreciate that about it. Also, you told me that you were a little unsure while you were writing it. Like most people, you struggle with some self-doubt. Can you talk about that a little bit? Self-doubt, existential questions, maybe? What I'm getting at is for a guy listening to you talk about what you do and who you are and how you just broke down hedge funds. And it's so obvious for anyone listening to you that you have your act together, you are an expert and you are making big moves in the world, but also trying to paint a more human picture. You were telling me the story of why you were writing it and you were like, wow, who am I to write this book? That kind of stuck to me, that vulnerability and, and that even someone like you, as successful as you are, we all struggle with this stuff, no matter who we are. 
Well, I never knew, uh, as I mentioned before, that I was going to dedicate myself to art. I'm going to quote now a philosopher Plato. He says that art is not something pleasant or disinterested. Instead, it's fundamentally dangerous because he can see the chasm of his existence. Basically, Plato is saying that you don't have a piece of art in the wall just to contemplate it because it's beautiful. But he's saying that art is intrinsically dangerous because it makes us think. That's what art is there for. It makes you reflect upon many things. A good work of art is what it should do, at least. Huh? Marc Chagall, the famous artist, he says, art is above all a state of the soul. A very strong and powerful argument. Yes, I have a lot of doubts. I thought, especially with the background that we spoke about before, thinking about dedicating myself to art, it, it didn't seem appropriate. And I had some certain reluctance to engage in art as my main business over many years. I remember a lady that was fundamental in my life that I love very much. It was my best friend's mother. She said once to me, with your studies and your career, how can you think about working in the art field? She would have expected me to be a banker. For years, I wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing, looking at art as a professional career. It took me a while, and finally I understood that no matter what you do, if you love what you're doing, you're going to be good at it, just almost by default. I agree with that 100%, because to create something amazing, something that will lead you to the success that you want in your life, you're going to have to work hard at it. If you do have this passion that drives you to where when you are putting in long hours and doing things that maybe you don't feel like you have the energy to do at times, it's that passion, that love for what you're doing that actually pushes you. And you found that in art and you found a way to, instead of going into banking, you found a way to make that happen, even though you had some questions about it. No, that's a powerful story. And something that I've talked to the listeners of the show, not not all of them, but uh, several of them. And some of them are in situations where they're making a lot of money and they're basically in a job because of the financial benefits, not necessarily because of their passions. Do you have any word of advice for those people who maybe strive to be entrepreneurs or in a position where they are maybe in banking, but they strive to do something different and follow their passion? What would you say to that person? I think it's never too late, regardless of your age, to follow your dreams. But I would really suggest to the the younger generations the ones that are going to college, or maybe not, doesn't matter. Very lot of very successful people didn't go to college. It's definitely an advantage. I'm not saying don't don't pursue a college degree. I wholeheartedly recommend it. Most important is to pursue and to follow your dreams. For the youngest, it's a little easier because you have no luggage and it's just you, and you can survive doing a little job here and there and pursuing your dream. For the oldest and family man, it might be a little harder. If you allow me, I would like to close with two powerful thoughts. One is from Ronald Emerson also. He says that a man is only half himself. The other half is his expression. What's going to define you, who you are as a human being, and what's going to define you in your life is the decisions that you make. Sometimes the decisions are equally good. When you have a decision, should I stay or should I go? When both decisions can prove to be good, and there is a very tough decision, whatever you decide is what's going to define who you are. If you say, I'm going to keep in the comfort zone, that defines you as a person. 
If you say, I'm going to take the one that is more challenging, that's going to also define you as a person. This is another one that I love to quote from Emerson as well. He says, the purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Powerful stuff. And too many people do chase happiness and end up not finding it when they should be chasing honor, chasing usefulness, uh, chasing something that they can give back to other people and impact their lives. And the happiness might be a byproduct of that. I think happiness is aleatory. Happiness comes and goes as it pleases. You might pursue happiness and tomorrow a very dear relative to you might have an accident and die. You know that very well, probably better than most. And that changes your life and you don't know why it happened and it truncated your happiness. So pursuing happiness is a big mistake. I think you have to pursue other things in life. You have to pursue, like I said before, to be useful, to be honorable, to know that you have lived and you've done your best and you've lived and lived well. And I don't think that uh, has anything to do with happiness. Happiness comes and goes as it pleases. And if you're lucky, you'll have more of it. And if you're not, you have less of it. If your life is fulfilled, that's the best you can hope for. I love that. So true. And Javier, could I ask you one more question? I know you're a busy man. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah, sure. I'm really curious about the way you look at money because so many people have mixed emotions about it. In fact, there's a saying when I've given talks to personal trainers, finish this sentence. Money is the root of and everybody says all evil. I'm curious, what is your relationship to money and how do you look at it? Money is an instrument. If you have the ability to make money, you have to make the money useful. You have to use the money to be useful to others. You have to use the money to create wealth for other people. You need to share that. There are some very wealthy people in this country and other countries that are great philanthropists. I think it is Bill Gates that he only left 1% of his fortune to his children. I believe, I'm not sure. It's um, pretty low. I can see eye to eye with him because I really think that the best thing you can give to your children, uh, when we mentioned before, is a solid education. Give them all the tools for them to be able to survive in life and to thrive because you can provide for several generations. I'm not here to work very hard just to make money, to live to my children so they can give to their grandchildren anymore. What am I to interfere in their lives this way? What I'm here to do is to give them the best education I can. And maybe that's why I'm taking many sacrifices in my lifetime, because a lot of the things that I do is to help them forge themselves their own future with solid background. But I told my children, we are building this art collection, not just to accumulate wealth. I don't want to accumulate wealth. We're not the Sipan God. We're not taking the fortune with us to the tomb. What I want to do with this collection is gift it back to the people and have it being host in a museum that will create not only intellectual richness, but also a cascade effect that will make a community thrive and be prosperous through an art collection. And we've seen that over and over again. You look at the Guggenheim Bilbao, it's called the Bilbao effect. That's when the Guggenheim built this phenomenal structure with Frank Gehry in the port of Bilbao, an industrial city in the northern part of Spain, south of France. And that changed the face of the city up and down. And the wealth that that museum has brought to the city 
has been in parallel. Nothing else in the 20th century or 21st century had made that city thrive as much as it is thriving today. To a smaller scale, I think that's doable. And I think that everybody can find what their passion is and everybody that has been able to be fortunate to find wealth, which many times it comes by pure luck, then I think they should give a lot of it back, most of it back. I would say just secure your children's education and make sure that they're well on with their lives and then the rest of it, you should put it to better use. Great answer. I like how you specify education, but you also teach your kids archery. And in fact, your daughter's one hell of a shot. First of all, that's fun. And second, it's also cool. Swag. I just learned that word from my daughter. Swag, yeah. (laughs) I just learned that one. Also, it's about discipline. Going back to the very basics. If you want to be a good archer, you need to persevere. You need to have discipline. You need to take many things into consideration. Say heat. Say distance from your target. Say wind. For example, you have to concentrate. Maybe you don't throw so many hours in a day when you're not aiming well. Take your time. And it comes a point where it just flows out of you naturally as opposed to forcing the whole movement of aiming and letting the arrow go, playing chess. Anything you want to do as a sport, what I teach the children is to do it passionately and enjoy Excellent. I love hearing your breakdown on that. You're a real-life world's most interesting man because of all these things that you're into and your whole approach and philosophy to life and how much of a renaissance man you are. Javier, you're the first client who I've ever had on this show. Several of the listeners said, why don't you get a client on and talk about the experience of training with you? You and I actually met through a mutual friend of ours. Can you talk about where you were in your life and why you started exercising, why you chose me to work with and some of the results you had. Although I was an outdoors person, I was never very big on sports. I've always enjoyed sports you do on a one-on-one basis. For instance, my father was a renowned soccer player and he had to stop doing it because he was a lawyer and he had to go back to law practice. So I was never a good soccer player because he was that good that everybody thought that I was going to be very good and I just abandoned sports. I've been an outdoor person, horseback riding and other things, but never an avid sports person. I was in my late 40s when we met, and I knew I had to do something. Mente sana incorpore sano, from Latin. To have a sane mind, you have to have a healthy body. So I don't think one works without the other, and it makes all the sense in the world. Through common friends, I was introduced to you. I had trainers before, and I had gone to a gym before, but it's never enough for me to be able to pursue it or learn from it, again, as a discipline. Right now, I don't work out every day, but I do at least two, three times a week. It's definitely make a big effect on my body, and not only my body, on my mind as well, because I feel more confident on what I do. I am more focused. My mind is sharper and I can think fast and react fast to things. I feel strong and confident. I found myself a new discipline going back to what I was doing, archery or hunting. Um, Exercising and keeping good control of your body is part of everything. What are you going to do without your body? You can't do anything without it. The best instrument you'll ever own. So take care of it. The ability to to learn deep into knowing your body and how it works and, and to combine 
the exercise, with the healthy eating habits, with the stretching, with other things that makes the whole thing work. Excellent. I love what you said, by the way, that it's another discipline where you're learning not just pumping up your muscles and trying to get stronger and look good, which you do, but you're learning how to control your body. You view it as a process of self-mastery instead of just a way to pump your muscles up. It's underappreciated part of the whole exercise experience. Definitely. It's much more than just pumping your muscle. It should be part of your daily routine, part of your daily philosophy, part of who you are is how you look. I look great, really. I'm okay for a 50-year-old man, 51 actually. Thanks to you, definitely. I would not be in this good shape. I learned um, and I trained with you. It makes a whole difference if you end up with somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. Instead of getting a good shape and learning to love and enjoy exercise, you would have the contrary effect. You can hurt yourself if you're not with the right expert. If I'm going to go hunting in Africa, I don't want to go with somebody that has no idea on how to deal with dangerous animals. I need to be with the best in kind, with the best there is as a professional hunter. And the same thing with training. You need to go with the best trainer. Javier, I really appreciate that. The sad part of this story is that you're actually leaving Miami Beach. So we're no longer going to be training with each other, which I'm going to miss our training sessions. I'm going to miss your stories and talking with you about life and all these other things. You are on to your new challenge, on to getting outside your comfort zone and leveling up in your life. I know you have an amazing journey ahead of you. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, getting your move coordinated to to do this interview. It, It was really a pleasure having you on the show and having this opportunity to sit down with you one-on-one and hear more about you and and your life and how you look at life. Thank you. No, thank you. I enjoyed our talks as much as your training sessions and such. You put me to sweat more than I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll tell you what life is like in New York. It's a new challenge. I made the decision to move there for no better reason that I wanted to push it a little bit farther. Excellent. I know you have big things ahead of you and you're going to go on to do some amazing things in the world of art. Thank you so much for being here. Is there any last words that you'd like to share with the listeners? Maybe some words of inspiration or anything like that? I think I've said a lot of the things that are are my credo. I have no regrets. I guess that would be another one maybe I didn't say before. Whatever you did, you did. Whatever you're about to do, just do it and, and have no regrets. One more thing is whatever you do in life, make sure that you're not hurting anybody. I love it. Javier Lombreras, thank you so much again for this opportunity. And I hope we stay connected no matter where we are in the world. Absolutely. Thank you, Ted.